This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, Season 8, Episode 5. Welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network of podcasts brought to you by Mountain Man Medical. Today is Wednesday, February 15th, 2023, and I'm your host, Jacob Paulson, and today I'm also joined by Matthew Marister. Hello, Marine Matthew. <laughs> hey, Jacob, what's going on? It's a big deal, man. Once a Marine, always a Marine. That's what they say. That's today, <laughs> today we got a lot of stories we're going to cover. This is our industry update or industry news episode that we try to do once a month, and it's going to be uh, interesting. You know, everyone's in major freakout mode right now about the whole pistol brace drama, and we actually have a lot of things to talk about. And surprisingly, that's not one of them. Uh, we have some other things that you may not be paying attention to that I think you need to know about that we're going to cover. So. Stay tuned with us. First, a quick word from our sponsors. We're going to actually do something a little bit different today. We are going to, we, like usual, we have two sponsor messages. We're going to do one of them now, and then we're going to do one of our other sponsor messages a little bit later. So that's weird, but that's what you're going to get. So first, today's episode is brought to you by the Guardian Conference. Listen up. The Guardian Conference, it's kind of a big deal. We're going to talk more about it uh, in the future. We're not going to stop talking about it, so you should just, you know, finally get out your phone or go to your computer and go to guardianconference.com and do the research and due diligence and learn about this event. It's it's kind of a big deal. Uh, we are really looking forward to it. The 2023 Guardian Conference is going to be a the third annual Guardian Conference. Uh, it's coming up this fall in September, so you have plenty of time to request the dates off from work, uh, to plan for the babysitters, for you know whatever it is the thing you got to do, get your you know hotel booked, buy the ammo, all that good fun stuff, and it's a three-day training event where you're going to take a class every morning and every afternoon for three days. So at least six total classes. You get to choose those classes. There's uh, plenty of uh, gun work if you want to be on the range all day, and I don't recommend it, but you can do that if you want to be on the range all day for three days. I don't recommend it because what it's really stinking hot. But more importantly, because there's so much other good stuff, you can do combatives, uh, you can be doing some kicking, some punching, some jabbing, some rolling, uh, you can get some legal education, some medical education, we might have a couple other tricks up our sleeve that are new this year. So learn more at GuardianConference.com. We just recently updated the website, so the new travel information's on there, the new information for booking uh, hotels. We have one new group hotel that we added this year, uh, so you can get your hotel rooms booked, I encourage you to do that as quickly as possible, and frankly, Now's the time to sign up because we still have the super early bird price. To manage some expectations so people understand how this works, basically the idea is we do the super early bird discount until we finalize the list of instructors. And we do have some instructors confirmed, at least one of which is new, so check that out. But once we get the final list, hey, here are all the instructors are going to be teaching, that's generally when we take away the super, super early bird price. And then we go to just early bird price. And the early bird tends to last a little bit. It stays until we basically get the actual class list. These are the classes that are going to be offered, finalized. Once that's finalized, the early bird price is gone as well. So get in there. Check it out, guardianconference.com. Matthew, you've been to the first and second Guardian Conference. What's your 15-second uh, you know, thing you want to tell people about the Guardian Conference? It's probably not what you expect. It's probably if you're expecting, you know, it to be just a, a bunch of high-level running and shooting, and and, and that's all. Um, you'll probably be surprised at the diversity of the types of classes and the people that are there. It's not just a bunch of dudes with like plate carriers and all kinds of stuff. You you have families there. You have 
husbands and wives and um, it's just a great it's a great environment to learn and, and be able to take in a bunch of different disciplines and different things that you might not normally be able to to, to get to so uh, in, in one one event so uh, and it's a beautiful uh, facility too yeah, so. available and and custom built to deliver value for people of all skill levels all ages all genders all whatevers so check it out guardiancommerce.com all right, let's dive right into it. So we're going to get into our first story here. And this one is actually published on our website, though I've seen this uh, covered by a handful of media outlets. And the title of the story is Federal Judge Law Bearing, Barring, Bearing, whatever, Barring Marijuana Users from Owning Firearm is Unconstitutional. So this is a court case that seems to have gotten smacked around, you know, and, and made its way up the chain, the food chain a little bit until it hit a federal district court. Matthew... What's the deal here? You know, is everybody listening to this? They can go smoke weed now. Is that is that what we're saying? Not not exactly. Um, and obviously, you know, I'll preface this whole conversation with, you know, it, it's generally not a good idea to be high or drunk or under the influence and handle firearms, whether it's legal or not. Like we're not talking about, you know, the the. Uh, I don't know what, if it's smart to, to handle firearms in, 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 or in, if it's a good idea to smoke yeah, marijuana. If you're that, physically or emotionally to, compromised, you shouldn't have direct access to a gun. And that, that opinion has not changed. Right, right. So uh, this has to do with, is, it const, is the law that, that makes, uh, when you go to, to buy a firearm and says, are you... Uh, either a, a legal or illegal user of, you know, any controlled substance or marijuana, um, is that prohibition constitutional? And um, it, the, the case is United States uh, versus Jared Michael Harrison. And um, essentially what this, what happens is this guy um, is, is, is driving uh, his vehicle. He gets stopped um for uh, by the police by failing to stop at a, at a light police come uh they 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 speak to him at the at the car they smell marijuana uh they ask him to come out out of the out of the car he doesn't have a medical marijuana license um so essentially he, he's you know it, just like plain sight you can have plain smell and they smell marijuana so it's assumed that there's marijuana in the car uh, they they take him out of the car. There's they find marijuana in the car. They find a loaded revolver in the vehicle, and um, <clears throat> and basically what they do is they arrest him. Um, they arrest him for possession of marijuana, possession of paraphernalia, and uh, in the traffic violation. As he's waiting for these charges, they then fire file the federal um, uh, a federal indictment charging him with possessing a firearm with knowledge that he was an unlawful user of marijuana, and uh, that's the federal uh, eighteen USC nine twenty two G three, and so that's that's that you know that that um, prohibition that you, you can't because marijuana is a scheduled drug and, and it's not legal even if a state allows it. Um, federally, you still cannot cannot um, cannot do that, and he's in possession of it. So he can't. He, you know, he's a user. He, he he's in possession of it. Now, Harrison, uh, the the defendant here, he argues that with the new ruling in in, in uh, the New York New York State Rifle Rifle and Pistol Association, uh, that recent Supreme Court case, where they basically, you know, it, they uh, 
they were addressing the, you know, the, um, uh, the New York uh, licensing scheme that said, right, exactly, shall issue. Um, They they were addressing that, but in addressing that, they really upended the way Second Amendment cases were looked at and said, hey, we're not going to put a means test and just like say, hey, you know, what do we think? Is it, does it seem like this law, it makes, you know, people safer? What, like, we're going to say, what was the, let's look at the original intent of, of the of the text at the time, and were there were there laws, you know, similar uh, to what you're trying to enforce now, and um, and if there isn't, there's no precedent for that. Now, there, you can still pass laws that weren't, you know, but but essentially that's that we're going to trying to figure out what the actual meaning of the Second Amendment was when it was written, rather than how we you know interpret it today. Um, and so he says um, th- th- there's no history of being prohibited um, simply for being in possession of anything or even using something um, like alcohol or narcotics or drugs or illegal substances. And certainly there were there was alcohol back then. There were illegal drugs back then. And uh, in no time in history was there a blanket prohibition um, uh, that prohibited a class of people from exercising their Second Amendment right or any right just simply because um, they used marijuana or, or an illegal substance. Um, and, and now there were laws that prohibited you from being intoxicated and possessing a gun. But in this case, they never tested him. They smelled the marijuana. They found the marijuana. They find the gun. They never tested his sobriety um, to see if there was any impairment. So there was there was never any connection to his impairment. It was all just based on you're possessing this, you're possessing this. It's illegal. Bam, that's it. And so, um, so the judge says, yeah. My, they go through and and the case is, you know, if you if you read the case, I, I've included it. It's 54 pages from from the the judge's ruling, um, but it it's it's a it's a beatdown of the state's argument about, you know, well, there's this law and there's that law and, and trying to pull all these different things in. And, and each one, the judge is just like, no, we're, we're, we're that no, like that, that, that doesn't apply. And so uh, it really goes to the power of like the constitution, like actually looking back and saying the constitution has power. You, yes, you can restrain it in certain areas. Um, but, not like we've kind of become accustomed to just saying, well, you know, uh, Second Amendment is an absolute. So therefore, anything's on the table. And, and with that ruling, uh, it really it really strengthened, you know, if you're going to if there's going to be a law that's going to restrict the Second Amendment, it's going to have to there's going to have to be some sort of deep precedent from, you know, it can't be from 1968. It's got to be like, you know, uh much longer. And so or, or it has that's to basically have a substantial proven claim to public safety. Exactly. So, exactly. And I think that's the key here. So so there's takeaways. Takeaway number one, this is not a blanket permission to possess uh you know marijuana and guns. Like that's not this. This is a federal this is a district uh, ruling or a federal district court ruling, which means that it has some implications for that particular case. Uh, it has some implications, arguably, for people who live in that district, uh, certainly, but not beyond what the, the the court specifically ruled in this person's specific instance. 
It certainly has no implication on impairment. So it, 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 you know, it doesn't have any implication on whether or not you can be impaired and, and be armed, only on whether or not possession of marijuana, specifically a controlled substance, um, is, is an issue. So more to come, I think, if you're like, this is your hot topic and your hot button, I think that the answer is keep an eye on this one and they'll see what the, uh, you know, what else comes of this. You know, if, it, if, it, you know, if it gets appealed, for example, to the U.S. Supreme Court, that would change things. And that would that would be interesting. But for now, if, you know, if that's your district, I suppose that that's something to definitely be aware of. If you're a weed smoking person, you know, maybe you have some medical whatever need or I don't know. Anyway, something to keep in mind. But I think that, yeah, the, the main takeaway for the community at large, Matthew, is what you said, which is we're seeing that the New York Bruin Supreme Court ruling from last year, it's reaching further than we would have expected in a good, positive way. It's holding gun legislation and gun restrictions to a higher standard than we have had in forever. So the, the standards that it laid out that were applied in this instant were, instance were, were, were very high bars, right? If you're restricting the Second Amendment, one, is there some precedent for this same kind of restriction that existed at the time the Second Amendment was implemented? Right? Is there some precedent for this back in 1700s and 1800s or something? With, like, were we preventing people from exercising their Second Amendment rights then, if they were using some sort of controlled, uh, you know, narcotic or drug or whatever the thing is? Because if not, then, then that doesn't hold up to that muster. And second, is there some demonstrable um, public safety issue? Right? Can you show me research data, et cetera, that's demonstrable that? is not overly prejudiced, that is, you know, is valid and good, that, that suggests that this legislation is important for public safety. Because if, if you can't do those two things, it, don't stand, it just doesn't withstand muster. And we're going to see more and more of that kind of application of that legislation, um, that, that Supreme Court decision popping up in the future. Yes, sir. Good stuff. All right, let's bounce on over. I'm actually going a little bit out of order, Matthew, just so you're aware. I want to do next okay. the story from Land about the federal court striking down the ban on Second Amendment rights based on restraining orders. This mm -hmm. one is somewhat similar. Uh, at least it goes back to another question on the on the form 4473. So we're going to talk about this one next. So this is an article from Ammoland.com. These guys do a great job of, of doing stuff. Uh, and I am a particular fan of this author. It's from Dean, uh, who writes for Land. And this is another interesting case. This is also from a U.S. District Court, the Eastern District of Kentucky, uh, which is in Lexington. And <clears throat> let's see if I can get this one straight. You, you correct me if I screw this up, Matthew. <laughs> uh, we got our defendant guy, his name. Let's see if I can find it. Combs, something Combs. I can't remember his first. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Sherman Combs. Sherman Combs, uh, he has a DVO, a domestic violence order against him. Okay, effective June of 2022. And um, within a few days of, of that order being put into effect, he goes into a gun store and he buys a gun, a three fifty seven revolver specifically. And when he fills out form 4473, uh, he lies. He says on that form that he's not subject to a domestic violence restraining order. It's a question on the 4473. It asks it very pointedly. He lied on the form and said he was not subject to that restraining order. 
Now, obviously, you know, down the road a little ways, so, you know, this, this comes up and we find out, oh, wait, this guy's got a gun. That's going to be a problem. And so that's where the drama really ensues. And this thing gets, um, you know, appealed and thrown around until it goes up to this federal court. And the defendant, Mr. Combs' argument is that, first off, preventing someone from buying or owning or possessing a gun because they have a restraining order is unconstitutional. And so for that reason, he shouldn't be able to be charged, arrested, convicted, whatever, for that crime, because the law that makes it a crime is unconstitutional. That's his argument. And then secondly, he thinks that, you know, he was also charged with having lied on this form, which is a crime. And he's saying that, well, because the, the, the law that makes it illegal is unconstitutional, therefore lying on this form on that particular question is a, is a non-issue, right? It's, it's irrelevant. It's non-material. Therefore, I shouldn't be guilty of that crime either. So that's, those are his arguments. Uh, does that, did I, did I get it right, roughly, Matthew? Yeah, absolutely. Yep, yep. Tell us what happened from there. What did the federal district court say to that? Yeah, so it, uh, initially um, he argued that, and, and it, it, um, it, the uh, court didn't accept that, and and then he uh, appealed again, and it, it was a different, it, it was a different ruling, um, and so one of the courts held that the while the while the uh, restraining order. Um, question or prohibition was unconstitutional that he still lied on the on the on the document um and um that's kind of where it was but I, from from reading this it seems like you know that that's kind of a stretch that if it, really if you have an unconstitutional law you you can't lie that you know that, that you can't lie because the law itself is unconstitutional that you're you're lying about. So that, that hasn't been you know the, the case is still ongoing. Um, but it's interesting. In in I know sometimes even with the marijuana thing and this thing, people will push back and be like, "Well, people with restraining orders, you know, d- domestic violence, you know, abusers shouldn't have guns." And but this is different. Like we're talking about restraining orders where a, a person may not have even like this restraining order. Uh, it says um, this type of restraining order. It, it, you don't, there's no, there's no court hearing. There's no, no attorney uh, to be appointed for, for, for the person, a, ju- a jury or, you know, any sort of mediation that's, that's trying to solve, you know, the facts of the case. It's just somebody comes in, they say, this guy did this or that. He might not be there uh, ex parte. They issue a, a restraining order, um, and you know, and, and he's he's issued it. And so, are we are we okay with re- restricting somebody's fire, you know Second Amendment rights based on something that hasn't been adjudicated and, and there's no finding of fact no due to see it exactly. And I, I, th- I think that we all can agree that that's we don't want that because that's a very slippery slope. Um, and certainly, we don't want people that are been a, a, a you know a, a violent and, and accused. I mean, those those types of people, you know, um, th- there's an argument to be made that, that those people have have forfeited their some of their rights by you know not not obeying the law and whether that's a a lifetime ban or, or, you know, you can rehabilitate someone. That's not the argument here. And, and, uh, you know, my opinion on that is, is kind of irrelevant, but I, I think that this, I, I, I think that this is a good thing to say, look, if you're going to, 
issue a restraining order against somebody, you need to have some finding of fact to at least some level burden of proof before you start stripping people of their of their gun rights and then arresting them, right? And saying that they're lying on paper, on documents and federal felonies and all kinds of stuff um, based off of just some, some restraining order where sometimes these things, I mean, they, they, they people abuse restraining orders occasionally. Mm. Um, Former patrol uh, officer, Marister, you, you've seen that happen, eh? They, you use the court system, right, to, to punish, you know, your ex- and or your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever it is. And it's a very sad thing and it, it becomes very, very bad. And, and then you go to court or there's a case and they drop the case because now they're, they're back together and they, you know, he no longer hates her. She no longer hates him. And, Oh, I was lying on that. And it's like, okay, well, we'll just make it go away. And it's like, you've already started this whole process in people's right. So uh, I think this is a good ruling. I, I don't know what's going to happen, uh, uh, you know, essentially, but, or, or in the long run, but, um, yeah, yeah it, it's one of those things to watch, like you said. It sounds, I mean, it, all of us, the gun community at large, does not love, respect, uh, is not a fan of uh, extreme risk protection orders, right? Red flag gun restraining orders, because they lack due process, right? Because we are concerned that anybody can say whatever and without any due process, a person's losing their rights, uh, potentially for a long, long period of time or even permanently without due process. And, and so that's that's the core reason we have always fought back against those things and had a negative opinion about red flag laws, right? So so all of a sudden, like we're exposing, right? The, like for me, this case is exposing that what there's actually res, normal restraining orders. I mean, red flag laws aside, there's just straight up normal domestic violence restraining orders that ha, that lack similar due process. That are, I mean, this guy a couple of days later he walks into a gun store. I don't know if he even knew. That he had a restraining order. He actually, as it were, I, we do know that he knew uh, because it, it, it specifies that he knew. He admitted that he lied on the form. So he knew. But it's conceivable, right, that some court could be issuing a restraining order against me and I could be going to the gun store the next day and not even know that I have a restraining order against me because there was no due process. I did not have the right to face my accusers, to represent myself, or to plead my case. And so I think this is hopefully what I'd like to see come from this is that we address some of these gaps in the justice system with some reform to make sure that people's constitutional rights are being met. Not only that we're not taking away rights, right, without without due process, but remembering that due process is a constitutional right, one that's just as important yeah. and just as enumerated in the Constitution uh, as the Second Amendment, right? The right to face your accusers, to plead your case. Um, that's 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 as much of a right as the right to, to bear arms. So. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think uh, what what comes with this specifically? One last thought that I think is an important implication. The judge mentioned that regardless if restricting someone's Second Amendment right because of a restraining order is constitutional or not, one of the reasons that they upheld that lying on that form is a crime is because the FFL who sells the gun has mm-hmm. discretionary authority to decide to, re- to sell you the gun or not. Right. In other words, you can go into a gun store, fill out 4473, answer all the questions correctly, and the person behind the counter can say, you know what? We just don't want to sell you a gun. Hit the, hit the streets, bro. And, and FFLs have that level of discretion. They have that kind of discretionary authority. And, and that's an important thing to consider here that, you know, you might be thinking, well, you know, maybe I do have a medical marijuana license or, well, the state is, 
has made it, you know, okay for me to smoke marijuana or, yeah, maybe I have a restraining or, you know, whatever thing you think is the case, but you choose to lie on that form, and that's going to be a crime. Like, I don't think that's going anywhere. Like, it's going to be illegal to lie on that on that form, and you need to understand that not only is it a, is it a crime, um, but you're also removing some of the discretionary authority that the FFL has when they choose to sell someone. So it's that's not cool, man. Like to me, that's like you're jeopardizing, as you're about to find out from another story we're going to read. You're jeopardizing our community. You are you are putting the Second Amendment at risk if you go in and lie on that form. You're not just putting yourself at risk as a criminal because you're lying on the form, but you're putting our whole community at risk because you jeopardize the authority of the federal firearm licensing system as a safe means to vet people who purchase guns. That's not cool. Mm-hmm. Anything else on that one, Matthew? No, you hit it. All right. Well, um, then I think the next logical one, I'm still bouncing around our order. Let's go to another one from Amalan about the new leak that shows the ATF's plan to revoke FFLs. So all these links, guys, will be in the show notes, by the way. So if you're looking for any, you want to go read these stories or get more details, just go to the show notes uh, when we publish the show and it'll be there. Before we jump into the story, let's get our second uh, sponsor message for the day. This episode is also sponsored by Guardian Nation. Guardian Nation is the fastest growing uh, community membership program for defensive-minded firearm owners like you. You can learn more at GuardianNation.com. Being a member of Guardian Nation is important because it's really when we sat down and, and we worked out what was going to be included in Guardian Nation, we said, well, what does a gun owner need to be successful? And we identified all the obvious stuff. Well, you need a bunch of training, you need a bunch of education, you need the right tools, the right gear, access to the right information, those kinds of things. But what we really started to realize as we wrote all that on the board is that average gun owners don't have the resources to get all that stuff, not in any reasonable amount of time, uh, because you have normal lives, right? Unlike Matthew and I, if you're listening to this, you're probably not full-time in this industry. And so you have a normal life with a normal job and a family and a lot to do. And so you probably don't have the time, and most of you probably don't have the financial means to drop everything and go get all the education, training, knowledge, gear, et cetera, that you need to be an extremely highly proficient and and capable defender with a gun. And so Guardian Nation is meant to bridge that gap, to give you access to the training and education in a way that's convenient and extremely low cost, uh, but also to give you access to the gear. Membership in Guardian Nation comes with a subscription box where we ship you gear four times a year, gives you discounts to product from our site and, and some other partner websites as well. It gives you all access to Guardian University, which is a place you can get uh, all the training and video training that we have on our site where you can pause it, watch it at your convenience, rewind, watch it again, watch it with somebody. It's an extremely efficient way to learn a whole lot of good knowledge and skill. Uh, it's just awesome. Check it out and learn more at guardiannation.com. And as a last note, we talked about Guardian Conference earlier. Members of Guardian Nation save somewhere between $150 and $200 on your ticket to the conference. So if you are a member of Guardian Nation and you go sign up for that conference right now, you're getting a screaming deal. Okay, because Super Early Bird Discount plus Guardian Nation member discount. Check it out. Membership, GuardianNation.com. All right, Matthew. So this story, the... Headline is a little bit, um, I don't know, 
Got a little bit of fear-mongering going on here. New leak shows the ATF's plan to revoke FFLs, but it's not that far off from being like literally exactly what's happening. So give us the rough uh, summary on this one. Yeah, so essentially, um, you know, FFLs, uh, they are governed by the ATF and, and the, the license, and there are regular audits done on FFLs on their you know, their record keeping processes, how they're storing things. Um, and it's very, it's very technical. It's very um, regulated. And those licenses um, are in, you know, with, with certain violations, you can lose a license, you can have it revoked, you can have it suspended. And I know, you know, Jacob, you know, this is because, you know, our company just got an FFL not too long ago. And um, all of that paperwork and documentation you have to keep is, is pretty extensive, um, but what 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 happened here is um, under the new administration, the Biden administration, they the the ATF adopted a zero uh, tolerance policy towards violations at FFLs, and they they spun this as I don't know if you remember a, a while back um, there was a big push there was a big like up to you know uh, push about. Well, all these FFLs are, you know, we're cracking down on these rogue FFLs that are selling guns to, you know, um, gang members and pass, you know, not doing proper background checks. And so it really muddied the waters and kind of made it seem like, you know, the the that they're doing a really good thing, which if an FFL truthfully is not doing what they're supposed to be doing, the, you know, OK, well, you know, revoke it or suspend it, whatever their, their license. Great. But they kind of conflated the issue and kind of made it seem like all these FFLs that each any violation is like a violation of somebody who shouldn't have had a gun is getting a gun or it's something nefarious. And most, I forget the percentage, but the vast majority of violations are clerical errors. And these are errors like, hey, you put the wrong date in a box. You they signed in or you know in a box that they should have signed over here, or the person's driver's license was expired. You didn't you wrote down the date, but you but you know it, it was expired and uh, you didn't catch it. These types of things. And now where before um, you know the ATF representative for for your FFL would come do an audit and say, hey, you know you got. You got four of these violations here. They're clerical errors. We know, you know, it's your process. Let's look at how your process, how we can help you get better. Um, now what they're doing is, hey, you have these six violations. You're going to have a hearing here in, in, in you know, a few months. And um, we're going to talk about possibly revoking your license. And so it's, it's, a, it's a very harsh um, standard. And I'm actually... Uh, it's funny that this this story is here because I'm actually speaking to uh, an FFL and I won't say who it is um, in, in another state who is going through one of these audits right now. And he's telling me that like he's speaking to other FFLs and he, this guy does about 1500 transactions a year uh, and he had six clerical errors in, in, in that in that time period and they are threatening to revoke his his FFL. He's been in business for like 30 years. All of them were clerical errors. Um, and it's 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 quite disturbing because he's like, look, I want to I want to get the word out. And my, you know, other guys that have FFLs want to get the word out about what's going on here. But we're scared 
Because if we start going to the media and calling, you know, our representatives, then what's going to happen? If there's a zero tolerance policy, everybody's going to make a mistake eventually. And if if I have a target on my back from the ATF for my FFL because I call them out for, you know, targeting me, they're going to find something. It's just like your taxes, right? Like they're going to find some way that you violated something somewhere and you're done. And so they're very, they feel like, you know, they're, they're very nervous about this and, and this is being used to, um, to crush these, these small businesses because they don't have money to hire attorneys to go through this, this audit process. And it's very expensive and time consuming. And it's, frankly, it's, it's really scary for these people because they lose their FFL, they're done. Yeah. And so, um, this is, this is, a, a disturbing thing that not a lot of people are really hearing about. Yeah. Uh, having an FFL myself, though, admittedly, we don't do 4473s. We don't do transfers as a company. We don't have the FFL to be in the business of selling and transferring guns. That's not the reason we have it uh, as, as a business. <clears throat> but that said, I'm semi-familiar with their compliance, right? Because I have to be compliant. And it's a mess. Like, if you're listening to this right now you and you don't know, like, just I'm telling you to take my word for it that FFL compliance is a absolute master disaster. I mean, for me, it's probably the equivalent of an accountant trying to memorize the U.S. tax code, right? Like that's the, that's what FFLs are trying to do to be compliant with the ATF rulebook. It is a it is crazy. I mean, the four four seven three itself. I mean, filling one out properly is is like a masterful thing. Like compliance on just getting 4473s done correctly and not having any errors there is is crazy. I mean, we're, we're talking about if you really truly wanted to nitpick, I mean, when a dealer receives a gun, if that gun was manufactured in Austria by Glock, it has to be entered into their logbook differently than if it was manufactured in Samira, Georgia by Glock. So did they write Glock or did they write Glock Inc.? Because depending on the gun, you have to write Glock or Glock Inc. And if you write the wrong one, it's wrong. That's a violation. So I'm, I'm telling you that it is that level of ridiculous, nitpicky stuff that an FFL has to do to be compliant. Um, our friend of our, of our business, Ryan Kleckner, he has a website, Secure or a Rocket FFL, which you might check out if you are an FFL, if you're just having an FFL. He has a compliance course on there, which I took. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, hats off to Ryan for providing all that information, but it would take you days full time to sit there and go through the course just to understand how to be compliant with the ATF. As an so anyway, I, I need to get off that soapbox. The point is, it's it's so easy, so easy for the ATF to find um, screw ups, to find you know things that you did wrong, violations as they call them, and where previously. There was some latitude to try and work with an FFL and help them overcome patterns or issues they were having or forgive them when it's a one-off. The current administration is, is not having it. And here's the kicker. Here's the thing that I think you need to understand is the underlying thing. What happens when the ATF shuts down an FFL? Right? This is important. This is important because a 4473, when, when that's filled out and a background check is run for a gun purchase, the information that the state, feds, whoever is involved receives relative to that purchase is required by federal law to be destroyed. 
within a certain number of hours. And they don't even receive like a serial number, for example. Is it a long gun? Is it a handgun? Who's buying it? Yes, they're approved. No, they're not. The, the detail you put on the 4473, the serial number of the gun and things like that, that's not going into some federal database. That's, that's being uh, – the FFL is required to keep it in their records, right? But it's not getting transmitted out when the background check is run. And even if it were, law requires that information be destroyed, not kept or re- registered or put in a database. But, but when the ATF shuts down an FFL, when an FFL ceases to do business, the ATF can and will – uh, seize all their records. And so those records become now the property of the ATF. And the ATF then has the right to database that information. So if you go buy a gun from a from a gun store today, okay, there, there's in theory no lasting record of that transaction outside of what the gun store itself keeps in their records. The government has no lasting record of that transaction. But if that gun store goes out of business, the ATF can seize all that record, all those records, and keep them permanently. So um, right now, what we believe to be true is that there are warehouses full of all these records that have been seized from FFLs that they haven't been digitized, that they're not in some digital database. But one, I don't know if that's true necessarily. And two, even if it is, that's not to say the federal government couldn't today go digitize all those records right, that are sitting in whatever warehouse somewhere, like an Indiana Jones movie is what's in my mind right now. So mm-hmm. anyway, it, it's a legitimate issue, not only because small business owners are losing their livelihood and gun stores are disappearing over ridiculous, trivial, trivial things, not not legitimate recklessness and negligence, but just failures to, you know, to things like dumb clerical errors. But it's also an issue because this could lead to a massive database of gun owners and their guns um, that is not illegal. So, you know, that, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. Yep. All right. So speaking of F- FFLs and doing dumb things, let's talk about the dumpster diving. Matthew, <laughs> give us that one. Oh man, yeah this this was kind of thrown in there just for uh, I don't know maybe juxtaposition to 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 the stories about guys you know FFLs doing the right thing and so so here the 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 article is ATF recovers two hundred and thirty six firearms from Oklahoma City dumpster. Now, th- this is kind of a, a weird story. Um, essentially, um, federal agents allegedly discover a dumpster full of working shotguns outside an Oklahoma City gun store. Apparently, um, one of the employees uh, of this of this gun store was throwing functioning firearms in the dumpster, like not just one or two, but many firearms in this dumpster and some dude yeah yeah, for for some time and apparently some dude um realizes there's you know guns in there and says hey can i can i have one i just i don't you know i just want to hang it up it it doesn't work does it and he's like no it doesn't work and i just want to put it on my wall as a as you know keepsake or some you know decoration and he gives it to him and so um somehow you know the atf uh, catches wind of this, and the garbage man tells him. At, well, the garbage man comes yes, to the right. dumpster, and he and he sees the dumpster full of guns and calls the cops. Yeah. Right, that's right. So, and, and so he con- contacts the ATF, and as the ATF is there, the dude who's like getting these guns goes up to, and, and and basically says, "Yeah, yeah, I, I know about these guns. Like, yeah, I have a couple. He gave me some, and 
And like, hey, did you find, you know, is there a transfer involved? And he said, no, no, I just took it and no big deal. And, um, and so, um, it's, so it, it's just a bizarre story. Um, right now, like there, it says there are no charges have been filed against anybody here yet. Um, it says there's like a hundred thousand dollars worth of, uh, of firearms that were recovered out of this dumpster by the, by the ATF. And so it doesn't make sense. Like, why was this person just dumping firearms in, you know, brand new functioning firearms into, uh, into the dumpster? The ATF says that they were functioning. The the guy who's throwing them away says they weren't. Um, And so why? A firearm, a federal firearm licensee, FFL can, can, there's a way to properly destroy a gun and then dispose of it. And, di- and disposition is a very specific term in FFL language, right? It just means like remove it from my records and my inventory. So, so the apparently this gun store had previously contacted the ATF about the proper way to dispose of a gun, and, and they sp- supplied information about making cuts into the gun in three specific places: cut here, cut here, and cut here. And then it's good; you've destroyed it, and you can dispose of it. But <clears throat> they're looking at these guns in this dun- dumpster, and apparently there's some small percentage that weren't cut at all. And the, the, the majority of them were only cut in one place. And in, in many cases, that cut did not actually render the gun uh, non-functional, non-functioning. So, <laughs> so clearly, you know, this is an FFL who was not following the guidelines laid out by the ATF. Constitutional or not, by the way, but just to be clear here, I'm not defending the ATF's guidelines or policies. I'm not defending the NICS system. I'm not defending background checks, 4473s, or the requirement to have to cut up guns to destroy them. I'm not defending any of that. I find all that to be ridiculous and unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. I am, however, simply saying that this 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 dealer was clearly not following the guidelines that were outlined, and because of that, we have a dumpster full of mostly functioning guns <laughs> behind behind the gun shop. And, and you know, at least one guy who's dumpster diving and can't understand what the problem is. He, he was told that was fine. <laughs> Yeah. Come on. Weird. Yeah. Weird story. Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. All right. Let's talk about Gun Free School Zone Act of 1990, whatever it was, Matthew, and the havoc it's wrecking, uh, reaping, wrecking, the havoc it's creating. That's works for mm-hmm. constitutional carriers. Yeah, th- this is this is something you know uh, we talked about before the show. And, and by the way, guys, we don't you know we, we read these stories beforehand, but we don't write down notes. This isn't a scripted show. We're, we this is uh, and whether some people like the format that we just kind of uh, is just informal. We're talking just like we're talking to you guys, and uh, if we were having a conversation, you know. Um, some people prefer a more scripted show. This is not that. Um, but before the show, J- Jacob uh, and I were talking and, and he mentioned that like, he's been kind of screaming this from the hilltops for a while. Um, and essentially the, the, the um, gun free school zones, school zones act of 1990 um, puts a prohibition thousand yard, a thousand feet around school property um, makes a provision for, you know, um, if you if you have a state issued permit, now that and, and again we're not saying that that's a great law. We're not endorsing the law or the you know how, that it's a good law or not. That's that's what is essentially is the Gun Free School Zones Act. Um, now constitutional carry or permitless carry comes around, 
And now people are carrying, many, many, many more people are carrying firearms concealed in their vehicles um, and they don't have a permit. And so they are not exempt from the, the Gun-Free School Zones Act. And you may not even know that you're in, you, you may know that you're in a gun, gun-free school, in, in a, a gun-free zone, but you may not. Um, and if you don't have a permit, you it's no different than if you, you don't have to know that you're there, essentially. Um, it just just being in the zone, you know, de facto, statutorily, you're, you're, you're either in or you're out doesn't matter if you knew or not. Um, and you could be facing some serious, some serious crimes in, um, and essentially what ends up happening, uh, there, there's a story here. Um, if, if you read the, uh, read the story, there, there's a, there's a case uh, that I, I kind of link to, but, um, and this is the whole argument, right? Like, well, if, if they don't know, how are they going to know and what they don't know, you know, won't hurt them and, and all that. Um, but I, I, I think that there's some selective enforcement that goes on in, in school zones. Uh, speed is w- w- a huge thing, right? And imagine, you know, you don't realize that, you know, uh, you're going 26 miles an hour, or 28 and a 25 or whatever. You get stopped in that, that school zone. You have a, a firearm in there. And now you're in a state that requires you to notify the law enforcement officer that you have a firearm. So you're compelled to tell this person that you're violating the law, which uh, th- there's some Fifth Amendment issues there. Um, but that's it's a very easy way to to end up getting getting caught up in this. And it's also, I believe, and I'm not saying anybody's doing this, but it could very well be an open door for some areas or municipalities that are specifically anti-gun or, or want to crack down on guns to target vehicles going through school zones, a hard policy on, Hey, if they're going 26 miles an hour, we're stopping them. And they're required to tell us if they have a firearm and, and we'll, we'll dog on it. We'll take, you know, we'll get those firearms off the street. And, you know, at the press conference, yeah, we took six guns off the street this week, you know, and everyone's like, Oh, great, great. Yeah. And they were in school zones. Oh, you know, we're keeping the kids safe. And it could very well be spun up like that. I'm not saying anybody's doing it. I'm just saying the, the, the potential is there. And so this is this is one of those things that has to be on our radar. Yeah, uh, we have a, a very large number of states now that are constitutional carry, right? That, that no permits required to carry and so firearm. Basically half today of U.S. states are in that, that category, which is a significant increase compared to three or four years ago. And... This has always been the case since 1990. Bill Clinton signed this this law into law. <laughs> I mean, it specifically says, I'm quoting now, quote, it shall be unlawful for any individual knowingly to possess a firearm that has moved in or that otherwise affects interstate or foreign commerce at a place that the individual knows or has reasonable cause to believe is a school zone. And then there's you know other things that, that the law defines school zone. It says in or on the grounds of a public parochial or private school or within a distance of a thousand feet of the grounds of a school. And, and there's more. I'm not going to get into all the, the words here. But the, the short of it is that there are exceptions to this restriction. One of those is unless otherwise permitted by state law. And historically, that has been interpreted to mean having a concealed carry permit. Or if there were other, some other state law, I suppose, that specifically said, no, it's fine. You can have a gun in the school zone. Not aware of any states that have a law like that. So <laughs> so it's always been interpreted to mean you know having a permit. So 
So if you're if you have no permit, you're carrying you know under permitless or constitutional carry authority, and you're within a thousand feet of school, and you're not uh, at a private residence that happens to be within a thousand feet of the school. You're just you know trans you know moving through that school zone with that gun. You're you're absolutely probably committing a felony. It's it's a little bit of a fear mongering thing. It's not our intent to be like oh my gosh everyone like they're coming for you. We're not aware of anyone who's been arrested for this. We're not aware of anyone who's been charged for this. We're not aware of people who are setting up stings in school zones for people who drive through that have NRA stickers or Marine stickers in their back of their window. Uh, we're just reminding folks that, be, you know, in all the excitement around constitutional carry that, that took place, especially over the last couple of years, that you should probably be aware that people carrying under constitutional carry authority do not have the same level of authority as people with a permit. And this is one of those examples where you could be committing a felony with some frequency and not realize it. Um, and maybe you're not concerned about it. Maybe you don't think you'll get caught. But at least we want to make sure you're aware that this is a potential issue. And it's one that has the potential to be abused by those who would target people like us. Good, right good stuff, Matthew. Yep. Thanks for sharing that one. All right, let's move to the federal district court in Illinois. <laughs> this is a good one. So yeah, let me let me see if I can take us up a, a step higher from this and explain this. <laughs> we got a bunch of anti-gun legislatures in this country, state level, federal level, city level, county level, all over, everywhere. You look. There's people who want to take away our gun rights, and they are not creative people. They tend to follow the playbook provided by the people who want to take away our guns. Uh, that playbook sometimes is supplied by um, anti-gun institutions and organizations like Every Town for Gun Safety or Moms Demand Action Against Whateverness they call themselves. Uh, sometimes it's provided by their political party. I'm not, I'm not saying that any one group or political party is pro or anti-gun. I'm just saying that there are there's a playbook. And so if you're a legislator in you know Illinois and you know you're you want to stay in power and slash in, in office, excuse me, in office, and uh, you need the support of your party to achieve that. Okay, that's the nature of our political systems. It's pretty hard to gain an office or maintain an office without the support of your party. That like that that's not rocket science, right? And so if your party comes to you and says, hey, we want you to sponsor some legislation about, you know, getting rid of some gun stuff, um, I suppose you can you can have that fight if you want to. But you, if you say yes, they probably already have it drafted. That's why we see the same basic verbiage. Like think about the the uh, extreme risk protection order crazy, uh, crazy mania of the last three years. In almost every state, the legislation that was drafted and proposed was the same. It starts to get molded and tweaked as it goes through the legislative process, right? As it gets voted on and dissected and there's debates that ensue and it gets passed back between the House and the Senate and whatever. But but pretty much it's a copy-paste book. And our friends in Illinois just found out that the copy-paste book may not work out well for you because the, the biggest thing we we know, I shouldn't say the biggest thing, but one, one thing we, we, we just know about anti-gun camps people who are, are trying to take away our gun rights, is that they don't know anything about guns. They Their their fear is irrational and uneducated and uninformed, almost without exception. And, and this is no different where 
in Illinois, a law was passed at the state level to ban assault weapons. Okay, but the law was was vague and far reaching because guess what? They don't know what to write in there anyway. They're using the copy paste playbook that was provided to them by the anti-gunners. And that copy paste playbook is not specific for a large number of reasons. One of which is they don't know anything about what they're trying to ban anyway. Um, another reason is because you effectively can't ban the AR-15. It's too modular of a weapon platform. But anyway, that's that's a conversation for a different day. So they write this law that's it's extremely vague and far-reaching to the degree that that legitimately Illinois citizens would not have a clear understanding of what was banned. Now you 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 wouldn't know if you went and read this law that was passed that was voted. On, you wouldn't know if your Remington 870 shotgun or your Mossberg 500 is now illegal. Like it's that confusing or, or unclear or vague. And so, so a lot of, you know, lots of lawsuits were filed. But tell us about this, this particular lawsuit and uh, how that, how that's going to shake it out a little bit, Matthew. Yeah. What makes this kind of unique is, um, well, there's actually, I, I believe there's, there's two, there, there's many lawsuits, but um, one of them, uh, has to do with the, the the component of the law that bans um, firearm components like parts, and so 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 you can't even have parts of guns that could be used to you know um, make the, it it fit into one of these broad vague categories. So it's it's so it's so it's so vague that even, you know, you might have a type of a spring or a, a sear and, and these things could, could be illegal to own, um, on of themselves. And so the, the interesting thing is, um, what they did was the attorneys, uh, said, okay. Um, or actually the, the attorney, the, the, um, the attorneys asked for an injunction against this law. Uh, of the judge granted it, the court granted it, but the, there was a, a period of time for the state to uh, appeal that and say, Hey, we don't think that you should, that you should, you know, this injunction uh, is uh, unjust. It, exactly. And, and so the judge is like, okay, uh, in that, in that, uh, you know, that, um, that, 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 that paperwork, that argument that you're going to bring, I want you to give me an example of everything that is going to be in violation, not just, and he leaves it very vague. So, so as to say, I, you need to provide an example of everything that's going to be illegal, meaning every spring, every sear, every part, every gun, every, you know, everything, every stock, every foregrip, every, everything, which is impossible and it's pretty kind of not entertaining you know it's sad because it just shows that like there's no way that they would be able to bring examples and show all these things but it's true like if you're going to ban something and make it illegal and, and, and strap felonies onto people you need to you need to be clear with what you're banning and i think the point of it is is the judge is like you don't even know what you're talking about. I know what, like what you're doing here is, is completely too, it's vague and it's, it, it's ridiculous. And so I'm going to, you know, kind of, 
almost kind of, you know, make a, make a fool of them by saying, okay, show us all the things that you're going to ban. And, and, and I just, it's impossible that they'll be able to, to, to do all that. And, and so the idea is that this potentially the, the state will just be like, okay, we, we can't, and we'll have to redraft the law or we'll have to go back to the drawing board or because it's already in, it was already signed. Uh, it's, it's not a bill. It's a, it's a law. So they might have to, you know, amend it or, or just, kill the whole thing altogether, which probably wouldn't happen. But um, it's just an interesting tactic or an interesting thing that, you know, um, typically we, we don't see. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> 13th of February, 2023, order from the court. Within the response to 16 motion for preliminary injunction, defendants shall provide illustrative examples of each and every item banned under 720-ILCS. Signed by Judge Stephen McGlynn on February 13, 2023. This text entry is an order of the court. No further documentation will be mailed. <laughs> so it, I, I love it um, because I think it, it's going to have two important repercussions. First is that this Illinois law is going to effectively become defunct. They'll have to change something, do something, junk it, start over something. I mean, this is proof that this temporary injunction is effectively going to become a permanent one because they just realized how faulty the original law is in its lack of clarity or, or whatever. Um, but the other thing it's going to do is it should have an impact on the playbook, right? For anti-gun organizations who draft this crap and force their local representatives to push it, push it onto the court, onto the, the, uh, the legislature. This is ho- hopefully they're going to take a step back. I'm like, crap. Like we're we've been trying to like throw vague stuff out so that it would leave us enough uh, maneuverability to you know make everything we want illegal and the, this you know in Illinois it didn't work the courts push it back and so we're gonna have to change tactics a little bit and I think that that's an important thing it's an important thing not just because gun you know gun owners deserve specificity if you're gonna ban something and call them a criminal you better be clear on what the crap you're banning. Um, but it's also mm-hmm. important because the, at the root of these assault weapon bans and laws like this is a significant weakness that they know is there, but they don't understand because of the lack of understanding. And that significant weakness is the reality that you can't ban the scary rifles without banning all of the not scary guns that your constituents will not allow you to ban. Right. You, you have a certain amount of your constituency, which is in favor of getting rid of the scary rifles. But when, when pen comes to paper and you actually have to write that into a law, you find out when you try and be specific, you can't. Not without getting rid of all the normal, not scary guns that, that by banning your constituents will yank you out of office for doing. And that's mm-hmm. at the root of this. Oh, super fun. All right. Well, speaking of lawmakers and see how I've been having, I've had some really good solid transitions this episode. I I feel like it's flowing really good between stories. (laughs) See see how we did that just again? Speaking of lawmakers, (laughs) let's talk about uh, Angie Craig from New Jersey and the Mm -hmm. very unfortunate thing that happened to her recently that's got her rethinking some of her policies. Yeah. So um, I, I don't know if you guys 
have been following the the past few years, but it seems like there's there's been a little bit of increase in criminal activity and property crimes and things like that across the country. Um, and so recently, um, I don't know if you know you guys followed this, but um, there were two Republican council members that were killed in New Jersey. Separate incidents. Uh, they were shot. Different. Different. It, it, it doesn't seem like they were targeted because they were Republicans. At least that's what they say, and and they weren't they weren't connected. Um, so, but there there have been some uh, assaults in the past. Obviously, um, Scalise and um, uh, I know Pelosi's husband isn't a congressman or, or a politician, but th- there's been some violence towards politicians probably since the beginning of time. Right. Anyways. Um, two, two Republican council members get killed. Um, just last week, um, a Democrat representative, Angie Craig gets assaulted in the elevator inside her apartment building in, 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 uh, the capital city, uh, apartment complex in, in Washington. Uh, she escapes, she's unharmed physically, um, but shaken up. And so what ends up happening, though, is kind of interesting because she was somebody who um, pretty much towed uh, uh, the line of, you know, we need to defund police. We need to, uh, you know, look at, you know, criminal justice reform as far as bail uh, reform and sentencing and all all these things. Um, And after becoming a victim, after being victimized by a lunatic who um, should have been in, in jail and locked up, he had been, uh, she was his 13th uh, assault victim. He had been arrested 12 times for assault. She's the 13th. And so this experience kind of opens her eyes and is like, oh, wait a second, and kind of changes her whole paradigm of, well, maybe these reduced um, sentencing laws that we thought would be great because it would make every, you know, everything good and, and um, you know, and everybody's saying that the recidivism is going to go up, you know, this is not going to be good and we're going to have people and everybody denied it and said, no, this is, this is a great idea. Um, she, she realizes, no, that, that guy absolutely should have been in jail. Um, she makes some pretty, you know, pretty, uh, bold statements, uh, about, you know, she says, uh, I was assault number 13 on his record. I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure there's not a 14, a 15, a 20. If you throw someone in jail for 10 days and think there's your punishment and we're going to let you right back out on the street, what the hell do you think is going to happen? And I mean, she's right, right? But it took her becoming a victim. And I think this is the disconnect that a lot of lawmakers have that they don't really, um, they they haven't, they're they're not in the areas that their constituents are in, in being faced with violence and and when you say like oh guns are you know bad we're going to take guns away a lot of times it's those violent communities of the, the, with a lot of crime that those people need firearms to protect themselves and so when you become a victim you see violence in in crime totally different and I I, I you know I probably disagree with her on you know many many political you know. Uh, ideas and, and, and stances and things, but I do um, at least give her credit for standing up and, it, it, you know, in saying, you know, I, I, I was wrong. I, I think that this is, this is uh, my, my view has changed on this. And I think that that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. I admire anybody who, who does a 180 on anything they believe. 
because it's so hard. It's so hard to change a belief, uh, to, to, to say, I, I feel firmly about X, Y, Z thing. And to say, you know what? I changed my mind. Changing your mind is a very difficult task. Uh, it's just not something humans are particularly good at. So I think anytime someone can have an experience that causes them to question their own belief and that they take that, that process seriously and they change their mind, props to that person. Um, and, and, and I think that it's worth us asking the same question about ourselves, right? Are we open-minded? Are we willing to look at evidence and information that comes in that questions our existing beliefs and take it at face value and really think through it? And, and question ourselves on a regular basis, or, or are we closed off, like, no, I'm for sure right, nothing can change my mind. So props to her for that, for sure. And, uh, yeah, this guy should not be on the street. Like, there's no mm-hmm. – I, I think he needs help, by the way. I, I think <clears throat> an unfortunate reality is that sometimes sometime we – legislatures are limited in what they can do. And so sometimes they try to apply Band-Aids instead of looking at underlying problems and because it's easier because, or, or it's the only thing that what's within their power to do it. It's not one of our news stories for this week. And so I'll just mention this quickly, but we, <laughs> I can't talk about this without laughing. We have, there's a representative in Illinois who's proposed a bill that would, <laughs> that would require certain business owners of certain business categories who live in certain population dense areas to have private security. And one of those categories is convenience stores and gas stations. So you have, we have a, a, regis- a legislator in Illinois who's saying we should require these small business owners who are operating on very tight margins, and in many cases barely making it, we should require them to hire armed security so that people can safely fill up with gas without being assaulted. Like that, that's the solution, right? Like, so we we fail to sometimes look at the underlying problem. Like, well, maybe we should do something about the crime. Maybe that's the cop's job and not the job of the business owner. If people can't feel safe filling up with gas, uh, I mean, we before that, you know, we all said Operation. Oh, what was it called? Illinois ha- did pass. Uh, I, I can't remember if it was an administrative thing or a, a law, but there was a couple of communities in Illinois. Oh, all, Operation Fuel Pump or something like that where they had designated times of day on certain days of the week. On Thursdays from 1 to 3 p.m. or whatever it was, we're going to have you know cops at X or, or armed security at X gas stations so people can fill up with gas without fear of being robbed or shot. Like that's, you know, that's the kind of thing like that we're trying to put Band-Aids on a problem, right? So going back to what happened to Representative Craig, I'd like to believe that she's saying, you know what, we can't, we can't keep putting band-aids on the problem. We need to address the issue. And there's different layers of that because she, in addition to talking about longer sentencing and, and you know, re- repeat violations and things like that, she does also talk about mental illness and some other things like mm-hmm. that that need to be addressed. This person is not stable. This person is a lunatic. They need help. Uh, and maybe mm-hmm. help is not just prison. Maybe there's, there's something more society can do for this individual. And so I appreciate that tone as well, that we need to look beyond the surface the surface level of this, which is throw more people in jail and keep them there, repeat offenders. And we also need to say, well, what can we do to help these people? Because just locking them up and making them a burden to taxpayers maybe is not the long-term solution to, to this, you know, this issue in society. So a bit of a long-winded thought there, but I think it's important. No, that's, that's good. Yeah. 
Right on. And if you're in Illinois, call up that representative who wants to force small business owners to pay for armed security and tell me he's a moron. How ridiculous. It's just unbelievable. Just like, okay, so I guess we've just admitted that we can't keep people safe. <laughs> Got it. 10-4. Like, thanks. Like, we're just going to throw in the towel and, and be clear that, hey, we can't keep you safe. <laughs> I wonder if the state has an armed security that they that we could hire. Could we, could we do that? <laughs> Government contract time. <laughs> that'll keep yep. me in power when, when I need votes again alright well that's it guys that's a wrap for us today on season 8 episode 5 of the Consult Carry Podcast remember this episode was sponsored by the Guardian Conference and by Guardian Nation check it out Guardian Conference that's where people go to get affordable awesome training from the best trainers in the nation Matthew and I will be there though we won't be training uh, most likely Matthew might because he's pretty awesome but I won't be training so we will we'll be there I'm excited to get some education myself. Check it out. And, of course, always learn more and join Guardian Nation at guardiannation.com. We appreciate all you guys participating today. Please leave us a, a review if you haven't already. If you have feedback for us, things we can improve, topics you want us to address, you can always email us at podcast at concealedcare.com. We do read and respond to those emails every time. So thanks again for being with us here today and for letting us feel your uh, your ears for an hour or so. Matthew, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Jacob. All right. With that, we're signing off. Remember to train right, train off, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.